I'm Josh Hammer. I'm Emily Jashinsky. We know Stepman. And I'm Ben Weingarten. And this is NatCon Squad, where common good and common sense meet. NatCon Squad is produced by the Edmund Burke Foundation, the home for national conservatism. Subscribe now on iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcast. So welcome back, everyone. Hope everyone had a festive, family-friendly, and just generally engaging and, and meaningful 4th of July Independence Day weekend. So we have, as usual, a very well-rounded show for you today. So Ben is going to kick us off with a story about the feds ignoring massive illegal aliens ID theft. Then we're going to have a 4th of July theme segment that Inez is going to talk about with respect to NPR dropping the reading of the Declaration of Independence. Then I will discuss a horrific tragedy, which of course we all know happened on Monday out of Highland Park, Illinois. And then Emily will close us out with a recap and kind of looking at the broader context of the Cassidy Hutchinson January 6th committee testimony, which is getting a lot of play for better or for worse. But uh, Ben, let's toss it over to you to get us started here. Sure. Well, I think it's only fitting that uh, we'll talk about sort of the fake insurrection at the end, but we'll talk about a real invasion at the beginning this week. And uh, sort of the genesis of this conversation is a report that Mark Hemingway and I did for Real Clear Investigations out uh, just over a week ago regarding this massive crime spree of illegal alien ID theft that no one seems to know anything about in Washington talk about or care about. And this is just, of course, one manifestation of the broader problem of mass illegal immigration into the country, which is only poised to grow substantially worse as the surge of illegal aliens into America continues in the Biden administration. So to put this number in context here, the feds actually have in databases via the Social Security Administration and IRS this pool of tax filings from illegal aliens. And when they receive W-2s, those are wage and tax statements, with social security numbers and names that don't match what's on file with the feds, they go into this book called the Earnings Suspense File. Very arcane, almost no one in Washington knows or talks about it, except in one pointed instance, which I'll get to in a second. This book, which shows the earnings of those whose social security numbers and names don't match what's on file, has grown from around $190 billion in, at the start of this millennium to $1.9 trillion today. And the feds have told us that a substantial percentage of these unreconciled earnings are attributable to those fraudulently using social security numbers. So how big a number are we talking about here? Well, Fed, the feds have not put out data for years and uh, we asked them to provide updated data, several different agencies, numerous times in the course of putting together this report. But the most updated data show that the, there were over 1.2 million illegal aliens using social security numbers that were de almost definitionally not their own for employment. Some percentage of which are stolen social security numbers of Americans and another percentage of which are fabricated, made up social security numbers, in some instances, which the government then issues. So you have kids who unbeknownst to themselves are born victims of identity fraud and saddled with the conduct of illegal aliens using their social security numbers in the real world, sometimes committing crimes under those social security numbers, uh, obviously engaging in financial activity, which the uh, future children or born children then are actually saddled with the credit histories of illegal aliens misusing their social security numbers and beyond. So the bottom line is this is a massive story of theft, potentially tens or hundreds of thousands of social, stolen social security numbers. Oftentimes unwitting Americans find out about this, maybe through a letter from the IRS, but maybe not until years later when they go to try to obtain their social security benefits. Almost no one in Washington, none of the agencies are willing to provide updated information on this. The IRS will not provide enforcement or has been very loath to provide enforcement in the past. When they know the population of individuals using social security numbers that aren't their own to obtain work, they will not share this information with other law enforcement authorities like Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, for example. Uh, during the Trump years, there was this issuing of no match letters where employers received a letter from the government to the extent they had employees who were submitting this fraudulent information. Bottom line is this is a massive story of massive illegal alien ID theft and or fraud 
The feds know who this population is. They won't pursue them. They won't proactively go to you and tell you your social security number is being stolen. And I think this is a microcosm. This is just one leg of many stories around the costs of illegal immigration, which is not a victimless crime here, particularly for those who face trouble getting employment because employers think they have the criminal records of others uh, or all manner of other financial problems, tax bills that other people have run up using their numbers and beyond only poised to grow worth with recent numbers that we've seen of over 1 million illegal aliens apprehended and let go via the Southern border, plus another one to 200,000, I believe, unaccompanied aliens, and then around 700,000 so-called gotaways, people who evaded apprehension. So we're talking 2 million more illegal aliens potentially thus far in the Biden years, and a substantial percentage of the illegal alien population, which often comes here for work, fraudulently uses social security numbers of others, and this is going to only persist and get worse, obviously, under this massive surge. So I raised this story as sort of a microcosm of the fact that no one in Washington wants to do anything about just one aspect of the illegal immigration problem. We're dealing with a massive deluge today, an invasion, a complete erosion of our sovereignty. And there seems to be very little appetite to discuss this, let alone present solutions to it in Washington, D.C. And I think it's a story that is worth covering amidst the myriad crises that we're dealing with today. So I, I wanna tip it off uh, to anyone, anyone who wants to talk about any aspect of the illegal immigration surge, the lack of sovereignty and the consequences for Americans, many of whom in this case, of course, are forgotten when they are victims of this theft and face myriad ramifications to it. Well, Ben, it's another good example of a broken system that actually begets more and more illegal immigration because the more holes they are in our system, like the more the more holes there are in our system, like this one exactly, the more laws that are are loose or easily exploited or not regulated or not uh, enforced not enforced is a key one, um, the more easy it is or the more comfortable people feel taking these treacherous journeys that completely pad the pockets of the cartels up through Central America and Mexico to our borders, where sometimes they camp, sometimes they cross the river, whatever it is, knowing that there's this financial opportunity they might be able to get through this person who knows this person. Um, so these holes in our system, they are exactly what begets more and more of the illegal immigration. Um, and more and more of people even just coming to northern Mexico, paying cartels to do it um, because you can poke. There, there are so many holes to be poked. There are so many laws that are not enforced. Like this is a great example. Is nobody cares. Nobody cares. Um, and when nobody cares, that means, you know, you might as well take a shot if you're somebody who's not you know qualifying for asylum, but uh, has you know real economic and safety reasons to you know, take that risk and take that chance. So at the end of the day, it's, it's bad for American citizens. It's bad for people in Central America that are desperate. And it's great for cartels because it's more business. Yeah. And if, if people haven't seen Emily and John Daniel Davidson's reporting from the border a couple weeks ago, highly recommend that. Um, but this, this really um, highlights the status of immigration as kind of a political iceberg. Um, still, even post-2016, even post-Trump, right? Um, it's still an issue that both parties seem to have institutional reasons to ignore. Um, but millions of Americans are then facing very real problems like what Ben is pointing to with social security fraud, people living um, along the border. Obviously there's violence such as documented um, in, in Emily's reporting on it. Um, they're dealing with that daily. They're dealing with, you know, the ranchers on the border are dealing with, um, you know, uh, not just illegal crossings, but the cartels operating virtually unchecked, even within American soil on this side of the border. Um, and, and all of that is to say that this is going to continue to be an, a major part of American politics until one of the two parties actually takes these problems seriously. Now, the only one that's even potentially going to take it seriously, obviously, is the Republican Party, but there are institutional reasons for the Republican Party not taking it seriously as well. And, and just as a, a final brief point, at some point, the United States is going to have to deal with the fact that we have a 2000 mile border with a collapsing narco state. Um, th this this is the kind of problem that perhaps if it were halfway around the world um, in, in uh, you know, in the Middle East or, or somewhere else, um, we would have all kinds of, of coverage on. But the, the fact is, the government of Mexico is unable to control 
the cartels, both the human trafficking and the drug running across our border. Um, and obviously we are not controlling our side of the immigration border, but this is more than just the immigration problem. This is, you know, um, essentially what is headed towards being a failed state on our border. Um, and that's going to be a massive foreign policy problem for probably decades to come for the United States. So Mexico is increasingly a literal failed narco state. I mean, that that northern region of Mexico in particular is controlled by some of the most violent transnational criminal cartel literally in the entire world. Just this week, actually, I saw a headline where, where the, the United Nations, you know, no less an iconic bastion of globalism, transnationalism, and leftism than the United Nations itself, described the U.S.-Mexico border as being the deadliest border in the entire world. Look, the fact that the greatest country in modern history does not have legitimate sovereignty and control over a over this border, let alone a border that's controlled by the likes of which are the most dangerous transnational cartels that have all sorts of connections to Iran and Hezbollah, just really, really ugly, brutal stuff here, is a pure failure of willpower. I mean, the fact that the, the idea that the country that, you know, first put someone on the moon, right? I mean, the, the country that created the internet through DARPA and all that back in the 60s and 70s originally, the fact that that country cannot secure its border is it, it is just a laughable farcical assumption. The only thing that I'll quickly add before tossing it back to you, Inez, because I endorse everything that's been said already, the immigration issue, I think it really is just rejected by the uniparty, unibrow ruling class in DC because so many people just look at this issue as just being, oh, it's like a pet issue for the rubes. You know, like the rubes care about like the the language or the ethnic composition or the racial composition or it's great replacement theory, right? And they're very quick to dismiss it for those reasons alone here. But the the point of this segment has been kind of showed over and over again is that this is not a victimless crime. It really, really is not. Look, I, you know, I, last thing I'll say here before tossing it to you guys, I grew up in a public school district, actually, that was probably half, you know, yeah, half English speaking, half English, a second language. And of the latter, a lot, not all, obviously, but a lot were actually there illegally. My parents' property taxes growing up were astronomically higher than they would have otherwise been to cross subsidize the illegal alien portion of my public school district growing up who, according to Plyler versus Doe in 1980s era Supreme Court case, they have to be allowed in that public school system. So the whole thing is total mess. It's a pure failure of willpower, misplaced priorities from the DC class. But we are totally out of time on this segment. So let's toss it back to you and as tell us about NPR and the Declaration of Independence. Yeah, and perhaps this is, you know, a story that that is completely obvious, right? It's it, the only question would be why it took so long, but um, NPR has decided to end their long tradition of actually lead, reading the Declaration of Independence live on air on July 4th. Um, and, and this we saw this coming because last year they had this whole controversy. They tweeted it out with, um, you know, all these caveats about about how the, the um, how, you know, the declaration was potentially offensive and so on. They essentially put a trigger warning on the Declaration of Independence. So it's not that shocking that they would eliminate it altogether. That being said, it, it's, it's obviously symbolic in a way of um, where not only the media, but the, the larger and here, I mean, in the classical sense, the larger regime uh, feels about um, the old regime, the American regime. So, um, and and as an illustrative point, I was thinking over this July Fourth weekend um, whether it's even conceivable, and I think the answer is no, that any Fortune 500 style large company today would issue a positive statement about America on July Fourth, um, which used to be completely standard, right? And we're talking old style virtue signaling, right? Just put out, put out, a, you know, something with an American flag on the background that says uh, we're grateful to live in, in America, um, you know, maybe referencing something from the Declaration of Independence, maybe something completely bland that doesn't actually have any content, uh, but nevertheless would sort of signal that, okay, we're, we're, we're patriots, we're happy to celebrate July 4th. It is completely unconceivable, inconceivable rather that, um, that any major corporation, you know, uh, non-conservative, explicitly conservative media outlet, um, or, or a bunch of you know other sort of uh, aspects, whether public or private, would issue such a a sort of uh, even bland declaration of patriotism on July Fourth today. And I, th- I think that um, that shows almost more clearly than any other example how uh, how much the the current uh, sort of setup in America and the regime that that operates America, both public and private, is hostile. Um, to, to the underlying principles that founded this country, to its length, to its culture, to its way of life, to its people. 
Um, and, and obviously none of that's none of that is new to anybody um, who's probably listening to this podcast or to the four of us, but I do think it was a poignant reminder this July 4th um, that, that the Declaration of Independence is being disappeared from the, the public airwaves. So um, with that, I'll, I'll toss it out to, to you three. Well, as Inez was uh, talking, I checked um, the the Twitter accounts of some major companies, and some did. You know, the Lockheed Martin, of course. Um, I Amazon had a, a just happy fourth, very bland happy fourth. Um, Lockheed Martin had a very bland happy fourth. Facebook had nothing, uh, but it does still have its pride banner. Uh, so I guess that's worth uh, its, its pride banner photo. So I guess that's uh, worth noting because even if people do post something, it it's all so sapped of its meaning, uh, so, so sapped of substance, so sapped of its meaning. Um, and uh, it is going, the NPR thing, and as you're right, it's like, how did this not already happen? Um, it's just so obvious. Uh, this is such an obvious um, an obvious articulation of what the left really thinks. And the more honest they are about it, I almost think in maybe an accelerationist way, <laughs> the better off we all are, because you can see sort of like, this is the logical progression of critical theory. This is the logical progression of X, Y, and Z. And, and as is, uh, I, I totally understood what you're saying that like they, this wasn't, in substance, um, you know, they, no company would feel comfortable saying like, God bless America because uh, it is the freest and greatest country that has ever been created. Um, no, that would just not happen. Um, and so everything now is, everybody is just dancing around every different point, literally everything, like even just patriotism. Um, and when you don't have patriotism, well, we're finding out what happens. Um, and when you don't have patriotism, you can't exist together in a nation. So when you have the national public radio um, putting out statements like that, it, what we should be most worried about, and I know we've talked about this before, is uh, how deeply that's taking root in a younger generation. Um, you know, Howard Zinn's been writing his book for decades. Um, and I'm sure he convinced a lot of boomers, uh, you know, to hate their country. But uh, we're going in a, a darker, much, much, much darker direction when Zinn isn't subversive, but tame compared to what's coming out of NPR. Um, and, and you can't really exist as a country uh, unless you, you can respect the founding and you can respect the, the principles, the bedrock principles of the country. So the 35,000 foot altitude level question, like from my perspective here, is what is the role of our taxpayer funded institutions, which NPR obviously is. And, you know, look, I, to, from the perspective of like the New York Times editorial board or an MSNBC talking head perspective here, perhaps the purpose of these taxpayer funded institutions is to make America feel bad for being founded in 1619 project style systemic racism and the original sin of Slavery, you know, obviously ignore the 13th through 15th amendments and all of that stuff, right? But I mean, that obviously is a profoundly erroneous way to view the role of taxpayer funded institutions in this country. I mean, from my perspective here, the, the role of taxpayer subsidized institutions should be to kind of sculpt a citizenry that is habituated in the Republican habits and mind and virtues that alone can sustain an intergenerational compact that is a nation state. So, you know, you know from that perspective here, you know, one possible solution to higher ed to kind of go to like Inez's bread and butter topic, obviously, you know, the idea that that these universities and their endowments have such favorable tax treatment, from my perspective, that's part of like an implicit quid pro quo where the universities are supposed to conduce to kind of the, the soundness, the knowledge base, and ultimately the common good of the polity. But when they drop the quid, which they so obviously have, then we should by, you know, by, by consequence, drop the quo and therefore tax them more punitively and so forth. So look, I mean, obviously NPR should not receive a taxpayer or should not receive excuse me, a penny of taxpayer funding, right? I mean, that's been a conservative talking point for decades. It happens to be true. It's, an, it's a fairly inconsequential portion of the increasingly engorged um, and unaccountable federal budget, but it is, it is symbolically important nonetheless. And I'm happy that we're talking about it here because it just kind of shows uh, just the depths to which our taxpayer-funded institutions, by and large, have funded here, and I, I'm, I, you know, it's something that is just worth continuing to talk about until NPR is finally just sapped of any remaining taxpayer support and ideally any legitimacy that it may have had in a prior era. I think uh, 
well, one point worth making is uh, it's worth reading the declaration every single year on July 4th or otherwise. And it's, I always find it striking that when you go through all of the king's various abuses, how many of those you can see our regime doing to us today. And so consequently, why would the regime, which essentially sides with the king, want to hold up a document that rejects the king and calls for declaring independence from it? The declaration in a sense, is a document that invalidates our ruling regime, our private and public regime. And so, of course, with our tax dollars, to the extent that these taxpayer-subsidized institutions reflect the regime's desires rather than America's desires, uh, the America which they wouldn't exist without, uh, of course, they're not going to promote uh, what they would probably consider to be dissident, um, you know, a dissident pamphlet here in the declaration, the beating heart of our nation. Um, also, I was thinking about, and, and Emily sort of hit on this, but the pride flags everywhere and uh, the pride imagery in that's ubiquitous across every single institution in society over the last month, that is the regime. It, it would, of course, make total sense that that would be an infinitely greater focus than the, the declaration, which our institutions reject. I mean, they have rejected pretty much the very core on which the nation is based. I mean, the Constitution is nothing without the Declaration in reality. Uh, they have rejected all of it. So, of course, as, a, as the starting point foundational document, they can't confer their own imprimatur on it. They can't accept it as legitimate because they believe the entire project itself is illegitimate, irredeemable, and they lack total confidence and, and moral clarity and moral vision uh, or, you know, kind of a harmonious understanding with what the moral vision is on which the country was based in the first place. So there's a perfect microcosm of our ruling regime and the fact that our ruling regime is antithetical to the country that helped allow it to build up into what it's become. Um, anyone have any final comments on this story before we transition here? Okay, see no takers. So we'll we'll transition to another Fourth of July related story, albeit a very distressing and tragic one, of course, which is this mass shooting, yet another mass shooting. This time out of the Tony well-to-do suburb of Highland Park, Illinois, which is uh, located roughly twenty-five miles north of Chicago, maybe like halfway or so between Chicago and the Wisconsin border. Uh, you know, look, I mean. There's a lot to say on this. We have covered mass shootings in the past here. I mean, just like a few things that kind of come immediately to mind, like when I when I kind of saw this story and what I've been processing over the past 24 to 36 hours. So, first of all, I mean, on a, to kind of personalize it a little bit, I mean, you know, I have such fond memories growing up, honestly, of going to kind of my local small hometown's Fourth of July parade. We used to kind of take the the bicycles and we would deck them out in like red, white, and blue ribbons. And the local high school band would play like Yankee Doodle Dandy and all of that. We went to like the local park and there was like who could bake the most patriotic cake baking context. It was really kind of like idyllic, honestly. I'm like, I the fact that like anyone could kind of go to a parade like that in the year 2022 and experience what was just experienced is just just beyond tragic. And my heart's like really just I'd very much go out to everyone who not only obviously had someone who was slain or injured, but really just had to witness and experience this sort of barbaric, unspeakable evil on, on a joyous occasion like Independence Day. Um, the second thing that comes to mind there, and we can unpack this a little bit more, uh, we are not going to say the name of the shooter. I, that is a policy that I think we are adopting here on NACON squad. It, it's, a, it's a good policy, in my opinion. There is no reason whatsoever to kind of show images of these freaks of nature's faces, let alone speak about their personal backgrounds, any degree of detail here. The one thing that I do think is worth mentioning is the possibility of a, of a possible motive here. It's a little too early to tell, but it is worth noting. Again, I, I went to University of Chicago for law school. I lived in Chicago for three years. I'm pretty familiar with the area. Highland Park, Illinois is well known as maybe the most iconic, predominantly Jewish suburb in Chicago. Uh, two of these six people who were murdered appear to, to be Jewish. I, I saw a an Instagram account. I'm not sure if this has been verified, but um, apparently, apparently the shooter tried to go back in April to a Chabad Passover Pesach service and was denied by the rabbi who basically said like you are not part of our community and there was armed security and he ended up leaving I, I that has not fully been verified yet i just saw that being tossed around on instagram 
but I guess we will find out more about that as as details come up here. But it, but it bears worth it's worth reiterating. And Chicago obviously is increasingly just a total bloodbath. I mean, you know, Gianno Caldwell, the Fox News contributor, and just a great guy on a personal level. His 18 year old brother was tragically slain on the South Side of Chicago. But for all the issues that the city of Chicago has, and believe me, they are many. Highland Park is not that. I mean, it really is kind of like an idyllic American suburb. So the fact that this carnage went there, uh, obviously, is is just terrible. Just a, a couple other points to make there. So there was a press conference um, with with Governor Pritzker, and you know he kind of had some very now predictable, unfortunately, sadly predictable talking points pertaining to kind of gun control and uh, quote unquote assault rifles and things like that. These are very tired talking points right now, and I don't really feel a need, honestly, to kind of systemically kind of shoot them down one by one. But the one thing that I will say is that Highland Park is perhaps uniquely infamous for having among the strictest gun control laws in the entire state of Illinois, which arguably has the strictest gun control laws in the United States of America. As but one example there, when I was literally a 3L law student in the state of Illinois, there was a case called Freedman versus our village of Highland Park, Illinois, that was litigated out of the Seventh Circuit all the way up to the Supreme Court. The Supreme Court denied cert. Justice Thomas uh, dissented from the court's denial of cert, one of his many kind of, you know, uh, lamentations about how the court was treating the Second Amendment as a second-class right in the decade, roughly between the McDonald's case and the Bruin case from just a couple weeks ago. Um, and, you know, the, so they, they they literally were known on a national level, my point is, Highland Park, Illinois, for having a very strict gun control laws. The particular case that was litigated in the Supreme Court was their actual ban on, quote unquote, assault weapons, the very class of weapons that Governor Pritzker was railing against in his impromptu press conference yesterday. So I'm not really sure, honestly, what else I have to say other than to just kind of mourn this uh, horrific event, yet another mass shooting, obviously, that is just um, really just undermining America. There's a lot to say about this crisis, obviously, of, of, of despondent, lonely young men, but I'll, I'll open it up to all you guys for your thoughts at this point. Yeah, I'll, I'll pick up on the last thing you said, Josh. Um, obviously, there we do tend to fall into these I don't know about you guys, but I, I sense the same thing from you, Josh. That just really, I'm really bored and sick of having these these conversations that we have after every one of these shootings because they don't seem to be productive in in any way. And not just because oh, the libs say all the things the libs say, but then the right answers them with the same, you know, and, and nothing seems to change. Um, and and there is a deeper problem that you pointed to. Um, we do seem to have a large number of of atomized, disaffected you know, angry young men, many of them with with um, very serious psychological problems. Um, there, there was one point that actually uh, Representative Mar Marjorie Taylor Greene made on Twitter that that kind of blew up um, asking questions about SSRIs, um, you know, psych psychological drugs uh, that a lot of these young men have been on. Um, I, I, and I, I'll save my commentary for that for probably for a piece that I'll write, but I, I have a lot of thoughts about um, generally, the way that we treat psychological illness and um, despair, frankly, in, in American society as as uh, something that isn't something to be endured um, or or to um, either to place in, in a religious context um, or or to simply stoically endure, but something that is, means that there's something deeply wrong. Um, and the reality is that suffering and despair is part of part of life um, and, and, and part of normal life uh, for, for the human condition. And um, the, the way that we treat that is a pharmacological, pharmacological problem to be solved in many cases, um, which is not to say that in some cases it's not a pharmacological problem to be solved, but um, in, in many cases it's not. Um, so I, I am very curious about the role of SSRIs in this. I, I, I think that um, Representative Green raising that question is not illegitimate at all. I know that it, because of who she is, it tends people tend to dismiss everything um, that she says, but in this case, I think that she's making at least a she's, she's opening a valid point of inquiry, um, if not conclusion. But with that, I'll, I'll, I'll turn it over. Well, I'll, I'll be really brief. Um, it strikes me in the wake of these uh, sorts of events, always, if you go on social media, which is probably the least representative of what people are actually thinking and, and feeling broadly, but the first, the first response is, and obviously it's natural to look at what is the motive here, but you see, was this person on team blue or team red? 
uh, which probably neither when you're talking about an insane person either way to the extent they've even thought anything through. Uh, but it's really sickening that it always goes there and then it goes immediately to, okay, basically disarm Americans uh, or you know whatever the counterpoint to that is going to be as opposed to taking each individual situation on its own merits and demerits and then evaluating it. Also, the notion that there is some kind of technocratic government response to every single one of these instances in and of itself, I think, uh, doesn't really hold water at the end of the day. As we've talked about before in the case of other shootings, there are myriad links in the chain that lead to a tragic event. The weapon used to perpetrate the uh, tragedy here being kind of the last link in the chain. There had to be a whole slew of failures prior to that. You know, I'm seeing now in real time, and who knows, because the details are never really corroborated up front, but that this person used a legally obtained rifle to carry out this attack. Um, who knows if that's true or not, but of course that you know leads to all the questions about you know, what reforms could have been implemented by the administration or not to have prevented this. And we don't know, and we won't know, but so often this conversation is so content-free and lacking. And to Inez's point, it's just everyone sort of reflexively goes to their favored uh, narrative or position on it. But I, I think it's worth noting, first of all, the sickening initial response of the hyper-politicizing of it, and then not thinking about this cogently, which is that every situation ought to be taken on its own merits. And there are a lot of failures that had to happen before you end up in tragedy. And thank God, based upon at least the research that's been done by John Watt and others, that America actually does not rank that highly contrary to the popular narrative in terms of these so-called mass shooting events. And, and hopefully that's in part because good guys with guns do stop bad guys with guns. And hopefully that trend will continue, I would say, uh, to the extent the Supreme Court's ruling holds up in states across this country and people can defend themselves and crazed people have to think twice before committing terrible acts like these. So we've we've amended our constitution um, in different cases over the course of our history. Um, what strikes me though is that the left is is adamantly actually at their core against the Second Amendment at this point because they don't believe that it's a right. That's not to say that you know Chris Murphy um, seeds some ground and says you know maybe you should be able to have a a rifle to hunt and whatever whatever fine. But their policy is not that of regulating a right. Their policy is that of just regulating it like anything else, um, as opposed to something that is constitutionally a right for us to access. Um, and that's how we get into a position. I mean, as Josh was saying, Highland Park is not in Chicago itself. It's not too far from the Wisconsin border. Um, up in Waukesha is where a Christmas parade, where I'm from, was attacked um, by someone in their car um, earlier this year. And I think it is just sucking uh, the the morale out of our country. Um, it, we are just so sapped of, um, you know, uh, positive sentiments. Um, and I, I'm sure people older than us would say the 70s maybe felt similarly, probably the 60s to some folks too. Um, but I don't know. I, I don't think historically we can compare ourselves to that point either because I feel like our fabric is so torn to the point where we don't agree on the foundation. And uh, if we aren't building from a common foundation, we're not really building um, something sustainable. So I'll toss it back to Inez on that. Yeah, just a, a single sentence to wrap this up. One other avenue that we should explore in terms of investigation instead of looking through, digging through all the social media posts and making this guy notorious as we do with a lot of these killers um, is, is looking at the fact that once again, this is someone who was known to authorities. Um, that, that Very rarely is this not um, somebody who everyone around them kind of knew that this 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 was the type of person who would do this. So once again, we are looking at failures at uh, of law enforcement, either at the state or or the the federal level. I mean, that's something absolutely that that the media should be looking into instead of you know making this guy notorious by fostering his name, his face, and and every social media post or stray political thought he might have had, stray contradictory political thoughts he might have had in his head. Um, I think that would be a much more worthy inquiry for the media. But with that, I'll I'll, I'll turn it over. Sorry, let's go let's go right back to you, Emily, to close this out with Cassidy Hutchinson. Uh, I was actually I was pulling up a, a Federalist article um, that I think is really helpful on the Cassidy Hutchinson show trial. Um, so w w I don't think we 
sort of had the ability when we recorded last week to look back on another week of Cassidy Hutchinson coverage and January 6th mm-hmm. coverage. It was leading political playbook today, of course, um, as though it's the most important story in a country that's suffering from $5 a gallon gas prices um, and potentially recession and uh, all of these other you know, very real everyday problems. Um, and so Roe has decided on the that Friday, we all remember it, They call an emergency hearing for Tuesday after they had apparently wrapped up the January 6th, the House committee probing January 6th. um, And they go back in on that Tuesday after the Roe decision does not go the left's way. I think that's probably noteworthy in and of itself because Cassidy Hutchinson had already testified privately to the committee they then you know seeming to seemingly desperately um you know, pull her out to change the narrative on Roe. they orchestrate this true crime drama and this is one point that i really want to make i love true crime um it, it seems particularly you can look into the numbers on this american women right now absolutely love true crime um and can't get enough of it I think January 6th is kind of tragically fascinating as a true crime story. There's, a, It was a very interesting day with all of these interesting subplots and narratives. Um, and so the January 6th trial, which is literally being produced by the former president of ABC News, um, it, you know, I understand why it's interesting to some subsection of the public. It's also interesting to me as a massive security failure, but the January 6th committee has zero interest in actually understanding that and fixing it for the future so that something... Um, Um, like this doesn't happen again, this is about politics and everybody knows that. And uh, the media is treating it as the patriotic duty of people like Liz Cheney, um, who hugged Cassidy Hutchinson, I guess, after her testimony. Um, But the media spent all week acting as though what Cassidy Hutchinson had said, um, you know, she alleged that Trump threw a plate at a wall um, and that ketchup was dripping down the wall. I'm sure presidents have thrown things in in many different cases at the wall. Um, They should check to see what they think about Lyndon Johnson. Um, But I'm not sure that's a game changer. That Trump tried to go to the Capitol. At one point, she said she heard from someone who heard uh, that he tried to rest the steering wheel of one of the presidential SUVs um, and swerve to the Capitol when he was being transported from his speech at the Ellipse back to the White House. Um, and, And this is somehow damning, um, that he knew his supporters were armed, which we know that most of the people that actually raided the Capitol weren't armed. We have not recovered many weapons and Josh or Ben or Inez might know more specifics on that. I think only like one or two guns had been recovered. Um, There was bear spray, there were riot shields um, and all of that stuff. But this was this idea that Trump, despite knowing um, his supporters were armed, wanted them to be led into the speech and wanted them to march them to the Capitol. Uh, I don't think any of this changes our knowledge of what happened on January 6th. I think, you know, probably everyone here agrees that Trump was, the quote I like to use actually is from Ben Sass, uh, who said that Trump was playing with fire with some of his rhetoric um, about the, uh, basically about the election over those few months. I think that's absolutely true. Um, But uh, this is we've known that for two years. We've known all of this for two years and getting into the granular true crime nitty gritty that should be on um, you know A and E or TLC and acting as though it's it's a, a narrative that fundamentally changes everything. It's naked politics in a midterm year. Um, and I don't think it's working for Democrats. Uh, so I'll toss it over to you guys. Do you think the Cassie Hutchinson, uh, I, I'm, sh- I'm sure we're on the same page. It didn't change anything in substance, um, but I'm curious if you think it, it, it changed anything politically either. I, I mean, I'm not, I, I'm not sure it, it did, to be honest with you. I mean, I saw like a bunch of people kind of saying that like this was like, the first time that like maybe the January 6th committee was like worth taking like somewhat seriously. Um, I even saw my own deputy opinion editor, Badia, publish a piece of Barry Weiss's Substack, basically saying that uh, I'm I'm not really sure that's right. I mean, you know, I mean, like literally, like within hours, obviously there was Secret Service saying that this was not accurate, that he was not actually lunging. Uh, to your point, Emily, I mean, we there there was really nothing a year and a half later that we did not know in, in the immediate hour by hour aftermath of that day. I think the way you phrased it, playing play, playing with fire, excuse me, is totally fair and totally accurate. Um, there obviously were all sorts of irregularities with it pertain to voter fraud and, and whatnot in the 2020 election. I was actually, I was 
Aaron Mar-a-Lago to watch Nesta Sousa's 2000 Mules documentary film that I debuted. I enjoyed the film very much. But like the very fact of holding that particular rally at that particular moment in time, at that particular day, yeah, he obviously was playing with fire. Was he like an insurrectionist, let alone personally responsible? I mean, like, no, of course not. That's that's ridiculous. And it always has been ridiculous. Charles Kessler, actually, the public, the editor of the Claremont Review of Books, had a, I thought a pretty nice measured essay about this and the, whatever, whichever CRB issue came out immediately after January 6th. Um, but, you know, in general here, our friend Roger Kimball, the, 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 you know, the great Roger Kimball of the New Criterion had an essay at, at the Epoch Times where he was describing um, Cassie Hutchinson as Liz Cheney's Christine Blasey Ford, um, you know, as kind of like where you have to like leap to to try like make the people care again after you try to throw a lot of mud up the wall and doesn't stick. And then obviously the, the you know, the, the Senate Democrats, Diane Feinstein on the committee went to Christine Blasey Ford and then ultimately even, you know, uh, even more crazy people like Julie Swetnick. Uh, Roger mentioned Julie Swetnick in this column. I literally had forgotten Julie Swetnick existed. What the hell happened to her? But, you know, that's kind of similar to I think what's happening with Cassie Hutchinson here. So I, I really don't think much changed as a result of this, to be honest with you. Yeah, I, I agree. I don't I don't think anything changed. Um, you know, this this whole thing on every level, starting with January 6th itself and continuing through this this media circus uh, or or carefully, you know, sort of designed, dramatically designed performance, um, it all feels very LARPy to me. Um that even immediately after January 6th, uh, we were being shown the guy with the, the horns on his head as, as you know, America's leading terrorist and insurrectionist. Um, and, and it's clear that that, that, that kind of performance um, is, has always had one purpose, which is to delegitimize political opposition in a more broad way than you know, applying to the people who are actually there on January 6th and the even smaller subset of people who actually committed crimes um, on January 6th. But uh, with regard to playing with fire, even though I, I agree with both Emily and Josh's description of, of, and I think actually President Trump acted very irresponsibly um, in, in terms of, of playing with that fire, uh, it's worth noting that the left has been playing with that kind of fire, you know, the fundamental red lines of small R Republican survival for literally decades and from everything from what Emily said about not treating the Second Amendment as an actual right that's in the Constitution um, to, you know, questioning elections that this, these are things or to, to for frankly, stoking tribalistic racial uh, you know, resentment in a multi-ethnic democracy. All of these things are, um, they are red lines. They are, they're the type of politics that often comes with, with really severe consequences um, to, to law and order and to the long-term stability of a republic. Um, and, and I think that's, that's the larger backdrop here, even though I don't, obviously, I, I know they, they don't disagree with it, with any of that, but it's worth reiterating that, um, you know, Trump's irresponsibility with his words comes in a time and an era, an age, whatever you want to call it, in which one side of the political spectrum has been massively irresponsible um, in terms of, of utilizing the deepest sort of instincts, bad instincts of human nature uh, for their own political purposes for, you know, decades and decades. And, and there, there are real consequences to that. Well, look, I don't know about you all, but I think the walls are finally closing in with these latest bombshells. And, uh, and I, you know, I joke about this, but it's sort of like Mueller reports all the way down. But as I've cautioned from the start of this, yes, this is a sham Soviet-style show trial. I think it's a perfect illustration of what Democrats mean when they talk about justice, in air quotes. But at the same, by the same token, it is deathly serious because of what the DOJ itself is engaged in uh, relating to the committee. It's the enforcement arm of the committee. And of course, the committee can subpoena people and call them forth and then submit referrals to the DOJ. And the DOJ has been more than happy to accept several of those referrals. It's worth noting that the DOJ, uh, FBI Director Ray, classified January 6th as a terrorist attack. Counterterror authorities are pursuing every angle of it down to, of course, as we've talked about before, who the funders were and who the groups were involved with peaceful and lawful rallies that took place uh, in Washington, D.C. that day. So they really are treating Republicans as a terrorist movement here. And it's not just the political show trial aspect of it via the J6 committee, but it's our authorities themselves on behalf of the Biden regime. So it's a deathly serious Sham, last point I'll make just on a factual basis because Emily brought it up. 
you know, you would think all of these gun toting, frothing at the mouth, MAGA people descending upon Washington, D.C., that they would all be armed as as uh, this this witness so-called raised. Well, Julie Kelly wrote about this, I, I think today we're filming this on a Tuesday. 13 people have been arrested for firearms violations related to the events of January 6th out of tens of thousands of people who were in D.C. that day. Six face firearm charges in the Justice Department's Capitol breach probe. Of the six, three of them are accused of being on Capitol grounds, none of them in the Capitol. One of the three was a DEA agent off duty. That is the armed insurrection that threatened our republic. I don't know that there's a more damning factual challenge to the notion that this was a republic threatening or democracy threatening because they don't believe we're a republic, democracy threatening event than that. It's absolutely damning. That's a real bombshell, uh, which they will, of course, ignore as they try to pin half the country as being terrorists or their aiders, abettors, and enablers. Okay, well, on that note, let's kick it over to final thoughts. Anyone want to get us started here? Sure, I, I can I can kick us off. Um, I wanted to address something that Josh mentioned when we were talking about taxpayer organizations and, and universities and so on. Um, it, it's not just the money that we should be stripping these organizations of. It's it's um, something that Spencer Clavin has written a great piece uh, over at American Mind. This is a few months ago, maybe six months ago. Um, but we should be stripping them of the honor we accord them, uh, both as uh, their position in society, and that that means something very. Um, I think very difficult to accept for for a lot of folks on the right. That means something to make this concrete. It means you should have second thoughts about sending your kid to Harvard. Um, we should we should stop uh, according these institutions, which essentially have have skinned um, skinned off the the pelts of our um, of our, our previously worthy institutions and are wearing them um, without any of the actual substance. That, uh, that that actually made them worthy of according honor to in the first place. Uh, we should stop according them any kind of honor in our personal lives that we should, that means something very simple, right? Like um, if you're a business owner, don't assume that, that the kid from Yale is the best hire. Doesn't mean he isn't, right? Um, but, but having a Yale degree doesn't mean what it meant even 20 years ago and certainly what it, what it meant 50 years ago because these institutions truly are corrupted all the way down uh, and that means we need to actually start acting like that's true um, and, and one of the ways to do that is to stop according them honors in our personal lives and the decisions we make as citizens well and worth pointing out as just a follow-up to that you know justice clarence thomas makes it a point to pursue clerks who did not attend those very institutions and uh, i think we've all benefited uh, from that practice, and we should all probably apply that in our own lives as well. Uh, I'll be really brief. I just want to follow up on one uh, point that I made at the outset, which is on this notion of illegal aliens working in this country, uh, fraudulently using others' IDs. The argument that the feds make is really remarkable in this case to the extent they acknowledge it. They talk about the fact that illegal aliens contribute substantially to Social Security and Medicare. So it's the social welfare safety net uh, argument for justifying illegal immigration. They always talk about those purported benefits, but they never talk about the myriad costs, which substantially swamp uh, the purported benefits here. And I think what this, what this issue really illustrates, once again, a recurring theme here is the chasm between the regime and the people who actually have to deal with the consequences of that regime's policies on top of the lawlessness, the cost to cultural cohesion, the cost to actually the sanctity of law and order in this country. And beyond that, of course, the massive strands on our system, which we and our children and our children's children will have to bear the brunt of. So I think this is just one more manifestation of the elites forgetting about millions of forgotten Americans. So I was recording, Pac. <laughs> go ahead, Emily, go ahead. Oh, no, no, no. I, I was just going to say my, my final thought is like, I just don't I don't know how we're we're not functioning as a country anymore. There's such a, a weird juxtaposition. Um, I was up on my roof. I live in D.C. looking over the National Mall yesterday. And uh, even here in D.C., it's that roof is 85 yeah, percent like hardcore liberal um they were playing patriotic music they were dressed in red light and blue they were grilling out they were loving the fireworks you know they had their arms around each other as they watched the fireworks over the national mall um and it's just hard for me sometimes to think like yes we are literally functioning um in some ways and yet there are such 
these these tears in our social fabric are happening increasingly in pockets of the country like Highland Park, Waukesha, Uvalde, um, and not just in terms of shootings, but in terms of you know the fact that we can't even agree on sort of basic premises of what the country is, what it was founded on, and what we're supposed to be. So I, I think it it's hard not to it's hard to ignore the fact that or it's hard not to ignore the fact that we're functioning in our everyday lives. Um, but it, it for me this this sense. Uh, it doesn't feel sustainable. And I don't know if I've ever felt that way about the country. Granted, I'm not that old, but um, I don't know. It's it's hard to see how this this is sustainable much longer. The summer of 2020 um, felt like a huge tear in the social fabric. And and obviously we're not still in that moment of, of chaos, but um, it feels like it could happen at any time. Yeah, no, I mean, that was a big sigh for me right there because I, I, I'm sympathetic to what Emily is saying, but at the same time, I mean, I too tried to, I, I really tried very hard to resist kind of like the, the ultimate black pill of all black pills. I mean, look, what I've heard from numerous people on you know my podcast with Newsweek, I mean, I've had some recent guests like Carol Markowitz, uh, actually Carol's episode is not out yet technically, but we recorded David Azrat I had on recently. Um, you know, David and Carol are both immigrants to this country. And one thing that I heard from both of them when I was talking with them one-on-one was they just emphasized the point that you know, this country defeated the Nazis, they defeated the Soviet Union, and we're going to lose to these woke, you know, morally authoritarian losers. So I try just to kind of play that in my mind over and over and over again. It's just like, it's just a reminder. But um, look, I mean, it, it is impossible to ignore this spate of, of, of mass shootings. And, it, you know, it is tragic that there is simply not a panacea about what to do about this, because it really, really, really is a deeply, deeply cultural rot. I mean, you know, our friend Ali Beth Stuckey at The Blaze, uh, you know, had another tweet. I think it was like the morning that we're recording this. Uh, she, she has said similar things in the past after Uvalde. I think she's I think she's exactly right is America is it is failing. It's 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 young men. And, and, and there is just not an easy answer to that question. I, I'm not saying it's not failing it's young women, to be clear. But I mean, obviously, you can't ignore the fact that like all these mass shootings happen to be young men who usually fit a certain demographic profile. They oftentimes come from broken homes. They obviously usually come from, um, disproportionately, at least from kind of atheistic, less religious backgrounds with uh, the Columbine shooting in 99 probably being a notable exception to that. But um, I, it, I, I, we have to just try. We, we really have to try to, I think, just resist that black pill if, for our own sanity, literally, if nothing else, right? Um, but America, ultimately, I think... That, is still the greatest country in, in modern history. It just is. And we have to just keep on reminding themselves that because I too sometimes fall into the into the black pill trap. You know, I had this tweet um, that, that I got just totally railroaded on about like a string out like, like a drag queen story hour in New York City a few weeks ago. And like it was hosted by someone named Cherry Poppins, like clearly a groomer. And I was like, I tweeted out something like, I probably misphrased a little bit. I was like, this civilization has everything coming to it, which is kind of like a black pill inspired tweet accelerationist maybe would be the right rhetoric here. But, you know, I, I think I speak for myself just as much as everyone else. We have to just really try to kind of pick us up by our own kind of moral bootstraps, kind of reread kind of the greats, you know, re-familiarize ourselves with things like Lincoln's Lyceum Address. We, we have been there before, and all we can do is double down and do our best to get us through that. Because as, as Matt Peterson always says on Twitter, the only way out is through, and there is no other way right out right now. And there really is just no other country other than America for us to kind of make our last stand, I think, for the values that all of us hold dear. But, you know, I'm, I, I, that, wasn't necessarily, that wasn't what I was planning to talk about for final thoughts, but kind of the direction it went then, I guess. But on, on that note, you know, on behalf of uh, Ben, Inez, and Emily, I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you at the next NatCon spot. <laughs>